Blog Talk Radio. All right. So, in theory, we now have everybody with uh, on Facebook and everybody in the Vibe Radio Network. Happy Fourth of July week. Yes, Fourth of July weekend. We are doing the show early this evening because there will we, be fireworks behind us later on tonight. Yes, we fully <laughs> expect there to be some very loud fireworks later tonight, and we did not want that to overlap with our program. Number one. We wanted you to be able to hear us. Number two, we want to enjoy the fireworks. Yes, so because they are literally right outside the windows behind us. So it's going to be that, that'll be fun. I, I, the kitty cats aren't going to enjoy it, unfortunately. But uh, the, they have kitty control centers under the various beds in the cottage. Yeah, they, they get to go high and stuff like that. And obviously, if you're not familiar with um, with you know, if you've only been watching just so long, you might notice that we don't seem to be in... Uh, we're not home. We're not in <laughs> We're on vacation. We, 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 are, we are in New York. So um, very appropriate because tonight we're doing Haunted New York State. So we are coming to you from the source, if you will. Yes. That said... Our, part of the source. Part of the source. <laughs> we're doing all of New York State. And honestly, our closest story that we have for this evening is probably still at least a good 200 miles off from where we're sitting. Yes. But... New York State's a big state, so we got a lot to cover. And honestly, <clears throat> this is not the first time that we've covered New York State. Yes. We have done New York State several times before. Um, we did me... Finger Lakes area. We've done Northern New yep. York. We've done uh, Broadway. Yep. So, so if you want to check those out, there was the uh, North Country Spirits episode that we did on June eighth of twenty twenty. So going back a hot minute there, there's Spirits of the Finger Lakes, which was on May 24th of 2021, and Haunted Broadway, which was August 30th of 2021. Uh, so all of those shows, you can go back and catch those on um, either they're on the Facebook page and they're also on the YouTube page. So you can go um, go find them very easily. I will be the first to admit that it will probably be much easier for you to find it on YouTube. The search function on Facebook is leaves a bit to be desired. But either way, those uh, those episodes are there. And then, of course, those uh, we have brought up um, New York State on numerous other occasions as Haunted well. Haunted hotels. Haunted hotels. I think, uh, and also, didn't we... Um, the executive mansions. The executive mansions. Yeah. So we. So yeah. New York's got a lot to offer. New York's got a lot to offer, and tonight we are going to go ahead and we're we're far from um, digging around the bottom of the barrel. Okay. Not a, not even no, close. Yeah. The New York has a lot to offer. Will be there will be more about New York in the future, but in the meantime, we went ahead and we picked a few stores from New York State for tonight that we have not yet talked about. Yes. So uh, we're going to be going from uh, covering a little bit of everything from all, all the way down, uh, you know. You know, from down by the Big Apple to the uh, smaller, quieter towns from uh, the upstate area. And, and we're uh, also going to hit Long Island this time. Yes, yes. So, matter of fact, yeah. that's where we're going to start tonight. Yes. So, and, and Nico has yet again brought his, his toy. He must play. This has not gone away yet. Yep, no, no. Yep, so he has. I will be playing while Chris is reading. Yep. But, anyways, so, yeah, um, yeah, our first stop, as I said, we are going to be starting down in Long Island. And, uh, Hey, Alex. Hi, Patrick. Thank you for tuning in and watching. I'm always happy to see you on here. Hey, Patrick, I found a haunted lion for you. That will be a future episode. Let's but not, I found one. Let's not do <laughs> too much. Where we, I still have to flesh out. I have to find out more about that story, but I found where one is. Yeah, that's not even going to be like the next episode. No, it's not. You're, 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 but it's fun. It is fun. Yeah. I, it's a lot of fun. So anyway, now that, now that you've uh, gone ahead and... Of course, 
derailed. Yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mom. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. Yes. So, your, your grand fur babies are here having a grand old time. Oh, they are loving it here. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so tonight, start our uh, tonight's excursion in the town of Huntington down on Long Island. And it's here that we find West Hills County Park, a wooded oasis that stands apart from the nearby hustle and bustle of suburban life. Cutting through the middle of the park is a simple paved road, shattered by the encroaching trees and just wide enough for a couple of cars to narrowly and carefully pass one another. Sweet Hollow Road can be a relaxing drive if you're just looking to take in some of nature's beauty, but this road can also send a chill down your spine should you cross paths with one of its storied spirits. Sweet Hollow Road, together with nearby Mount Misery Road, hosts yeah, Mount Misery. Mount Misery, that is... Uh, that's, that's a great name. Yeah, fantastic name. But, yeah, you can look it up on the map if you don't believe us. It's there. These, uh, these two roads together host a number of ghostly tales that date back for centuries. The stories begin with Native American tribes who considered the area cursed and off-limits. But hubris, naivete, and general skepticism led to eventual settlement and development of the area. Ever since, locals have experienced a variety of unexplained and sometimes horrifying events that have become a part of the community's history and mythos. Of the many legends associated with Sweet Hollow Road, perhaps none is more heartrending than the tale of the school bus wreck that took place on a snowy day as an untold number, uh, an untold number of decades ago. The driver of the bus lost control on the slick roads of the Northern State Overpass skidded off the bridge and crashed onto Sweet Hollow Road below. There were no survivors. If you are foolish enough to stop your car under the bridge on Sweet Hollow Road, it's said that the spirits of the children will push you forward and out of the way. While a slight incline in the road can certainly explain the movement of the car, it doesn't explain the children's handprints that have been found covering those cars after getting a spirited nudge. Can I just say nope? <laughs> the same bridge is also the subject of another story in which three boys allegedly hanged themselves in a suicide pact. If you glance in your rearview mirror after passing under the overpass, you may catch a glimpse of them just as they were found after their fatal and final action. Another legend involves a day camp which supposedly existed along Sweet Hollow Road during the 1930s. Some of the children who went to the camp are said to have been abused or even killed, and their spirits can occasionally be seen walking along the road wearing 1930s-style clothing, though they quickly vanish when approached or called after. Another similar tale speaks of two young boys that were struck and killed by a car along Sweet Hollow Road near the Northern State Overpass many years ago. The driver failed to notice the children and didn't have an opportunity to sound the car's horn before impact. Local legend states that if you do not beep your horn while approaching the overpass, the boys will jump out in front of your car. Sweet Hollow Road is also said to be home to a police officer who was killed while on duty. His ghost still patrols the area and will sometimes stop drivers who may not be as careful as they should be along this narrow and darkened road. The officer will let the drivers off without a warning or with a warning, but when he turns his back to the motors, they will notice the blood and ruin that covers the long dead officer's back and shoulders. Without any further words, the officer will fade away from sight. Then there is a young woman named Mary who suffered a tragic fate. Mary is said to have gotten into a fight with her boyfriend who was driving down the road and was then either pushed out of the car by him or jumped out of it herself. In either event, she was quickly hit by oncoming traffic and died. 
Some say you can still see a lady in white walking along the side of the road and that she will jump in front of your car when you pass. Mary's grave and tombstone are also alleged to be in a small cemetery just off of Sweet Hollow Road. Other bizarre tales include sightings of a dog-like creature digging in a ditch off the side of the road. When captured in the headlights of an oncoming car, the creature stands up on two legs and disappears into the surrounding woods. Or, just as unsettling, there is the man with an axe who wanders through the woods along Sweet Hollow Road, menacing in his demeanor. All of these tales could be said to fall firmly into the realm of legend and myth. There are no newspaper stories or other historic records about school, about school bus wrecks, suicide packs, the northern state overpass, murdered patrol officers, or any of the other many tales coming from Sweet Hollow Road, at least not verbatim. Almost all legends like these have a kernel of truth somewhere to be found, and over the subsequent years and retellings of those original tales, we come up with the stories that are told today. It takes nothing away from the haunting and heart-stopping encounters that people experience along Sweet Hollow Road in the modern era, but it can leave one to wonder about what has really happened here over the centuries since the warnings of the Native people were set aside by settlers from far-off lands. But yeah, I mean, we're, we'll be the very first to admit, I mean, so many ghost stories. Of yeah. one little section of road. But makes me question. Yeah, exactly. It does make me question it, but it's also one of those things where, you know, it, it, most of these stories are told as legend and even outright myth. Yeah. But so where did they times, start? Where did they start? So many times there is at least that little kernel of truth out there. And, again, it doesn't necessarily take away from the possible hauntings that people are experiencing. Yeah. It could very well be that somebody experienced something really unexplained, and they maybe created a backstory to go with it. Um, so, again. We try to help them with the understanding. Yeah. I mean, that's how sometimes people try to have to try to cope with things like this. So, yeah, again, even if it's, uh, even if you want to dismiss it as legend or myth, take a moment and pause and think about where that legend or myth may have come from in the first place. All right. Well, the name of the next uh, building we're going to go to is going to sound familiar because we talked about the one in England. This one's different. No relation. Putting that out there, I'll come back to that in a minute. All right, so we're going to go to Raymond Hall in Oyster Bay, New York. Now, this is just a short 10-mile ride from Sweet Hollow Road, and it takes us to the waterfront hamlet of Oyster Bay. It's here we find a house that is now called Raymond Hall Museum. In 1738, a man named Samuel Townsend purchased this salt box style house. He made a few additions that actually doubled the number of rooms from four to eight, uh, and he had dubbed it a homestead at that point in time. It's here he opened a store, raised his family, included eight children in that family, by the way, the third of which was Robert, who was born in 1753, and the seventh was Sally, born in 1760. When the American Revolution broke out, Oyster Bay was primarily loyalist, except for a few people in the area, like Samuel Townsend. In August of 1776, the Battle of Long Island saw the Patriots defeated, and a few weeks later, British soldiers arrested Samuel for being an outspoken patriot. Fortunately for Samuel, he had friends on both sides. The merchant Tory, Thomas Buchanan, paid for Samuel Townsend to be released and returned home. As part of the arrangement, Samuel was forced to sign an oath of allegiance to the crown. 
While he may have been a little more subdued after his brief imprisonment, it's safe to say that his loyalties remained true to the Patriot cause. In the winter of 1778, now 17-year-old Sally Townsend and her family were at home when the British commander, Lieutenant Colonel John Simcoe, arrived to the Selbox house and he moved in with the uh, Townsend family. He turned the place into headquarters for over 300 Loyalist Queens Rangers. While it certainly was an intrusion of the highest order, the two groups made nice with one another, even while working at opposite goals. For her part, Sally seemed to take a liking to Simcoe, and romance bloomed in the months that followed. But one day, Sally noticed a man sneak into the house, leaving a note in a kitchen cupboard. She couldn't help but to read the note, and once the coast was clear, well, she didn't like what she read. Major Andre was soon captured and executed. Simcoe, suspecting betrayal and reeling from the loss of Andre, left the Townsend home soon afterwards. As it turns out, Sally Townsend and her brother Robert were both members of George Washington's secret organization of informants, known as the Culpeper Spy Ring. Their existence was so secretive that the Culpeper Ring wasn't even known to the public until the 1930s. In the years that followed the revolution, the Townsend House was passed down to Samuel Townsend's descendants. And in 1850, Solomon Townsend owned the home and made several additions, including a water tower in the rear and a rear wing. He gave the residence its current name, Raymond Hall. It was named for the hall in Norfolk, England, a residence that was also owned by a Townsend family. But there's no relation between the two sets of families. The newly renamed Raymond Hall was kept in the town's family for decades until it was sold by court order to repay some bad debt. The home was purchased by Julia Weeks Coles and brought back into the extended family of the Townsend. Julia Coles owned Raymond Hall for nearly 20 years and eventually deeded it to Oyster Bay Daughters of the American Revolution. The Daughters of the American Revolution donated the property to the town of Oyster Bay in 1947 under the condition that the town would maintain Raymond Hall as a shrine and museum to the American Revolution. It was during during Julia's ownership that uh, and its 200 year of existence that spooky tales started to swirl about the historic home. An article in the Glen Clove Record newspaper in uh, 1938, mentioned several strange paranormal encounters at the hall. Julia recalled an event where an overnight guest saw a white horse with a rider enter her room while she was still wide awake. Julia stated the white horse was a family ghost and that it haunts the Townsend home in New York, England, even though the two Townsend families are regarded as unrelated. The white horse is said to appear a few hours before the death of a member of the Townsend family. Me goes jumping up on the chair. Now, a lady who rented the hall for uh, use as a tea room often heard odd noises such as phantom footsteps on the stairs. And on two separate occasions, a year apart during the meetings of the Daughters of the American Revolution, a Pekingese dog owned by one of the members was brought in. He became terrified and refused to pass a certain place in the floor. Julia Cole's sister, Sarah Townsend Halstead, recalled an encounter with a little bent old man walking slowly down the hall that vanished into the darkness at the end of the hallway. Sarah believed the man to actually be the ghost of Captain Robert Townsend, who died at the age of 84 and is buried at the Old Fort Cemetery in Oyster Bay. 
On another occasion, Sarah went into the home to retrieve books from the cupboard in the library, but the door next to the cupboard wouldn't bolt, even with tools. It wasn't locked. There was no lock on it. The next day, Sarah returned to try again, and this time easily opened the cupboard door. It was also noted that Sarah had seen ghosts for almost all of her life, including one called the Grey Lady, who lingered about the wardrobe in Sarah's childhood home. The article went on to draw a link from the Grey Lady to the Brown Lady at Ryman Hall in England. For reference, the Brown Lady is one of uh, Ryman Hall's most famous hauntings in England, and a portrait, uh, excuse me, a photograph of the spirit was published in the magazine in 1936. Again, the two families and the two halls are not related, so it, the story might have been sensationalized a little bit here. Just a smidge. Now, report, returning to Oyster Bay in the modern era, other spirited tales from Roman Hall and Oyster Bay include visitors seeing a young woman and a British soldier within its walls. Many like to think that it's Sarah and Lieutenant Simcoe. And once, once was Sarah's second floor bedroom, visitors say it's the coldest spot in the house. One recall how the room makes you feel anxious, as if there's a weight on your shoulder. Noises have been known to come from the room late at night, including screams of no. Visitors have also felt a coldness in the colonial room, a room downstairs where Sally hid as she watched the men in the kitchen that fateful day. There have also been reports of doors swinging open, papers rattling, and the sounds of footsteps. Many claim it's Major Andre's spirit angry for what transpired in the house and subsequently led to his execution. In October of 1999, a volunteer was working on the property when the garden door opened. A man came out wearing a dark wool coat with brass buttons. First, it was strange to see someone wearing that clothing. Second, the building was locked. And third, the alarms were all on. In March, another worker saw the same ghost materialized by a staircase. Once with uh, the bottom of the ha bottom half of his body missing, then again in full. The ghost is believed to actually be Michael Con Conlon, an Irish immigrant who worked as a servant in the home in the 1860s. In the upstairs of the former servant's quarters, moving shadows have been seen when no one else is in the house. And in the same area, the mysterious smell of roses has permeated the air. The first, uh, the spirit of the servant woman who it has been seen materializing and walking into the kitchen. And in that kitchen, the smell of apple pie can also be sensed, even though, of course, no cooking has taken place there in many years. So, if haunted history with a heavy dose of espionage and the American Revolution is on your uh, agenda, this is definitely a number one hit for you. <laughs> Comments? Questions? Lots of typing going on over here. <laughs> Donnie wants to know for sharing the fireworks online. Wasn't we weren't planning on it. <laughs> we might put a couple pictures on our personal page. Yeah. But yep, and uh, of course there will be the cursory and uh, obligatory Happy Fourth of July post from. Hong oh, Hong. I've got the photo ready. Yes. <laughs> so we'll be getting there, but. We had to just post that really cute picture of Chris with Nico earlier today, though because Nico had to be in his lap today. Go, go over there, Nico. Buddy, it's over here. Come on. Yeah, it's over oh, here. And, and <laughs> All right. So for this next one, you are going to want to hop the commuter train and the metro to get to our next stop. Because no one wants to drive here. You really don't want to drive here. We're heading into New York City and the island of Manhattan. 
When most people think about the island of Manhattan in New York City, they conjure images of the towering skyscrapers of the lower Manhattan in the financial district. But as you head north on the island, while you are still very much in the city, the buildings get smaller and there is more open parkland. You will also start to find some buildings that seem out of place when viewed in the context of modern Manhattan. One of these, the Morris Jumel Mansion. Set on an expansive forested lot atop Mount Morris in the Washington Heights neighborhood, the stately Morris Jumel Mansion is a charming historic structure that feels a step out of time. By day, the one-time... Sorry. Okay. Computer issues? I don't know what that's about. Uh, but anyways, by day... The one-time home that was built in 1765 serves as a museum, but by night it can take on a much more haunting feel, a feeling that some long-dead residents may still be there watching you, perhaps wondering what brings you to their eternal home. The Morris Jumal Mansion has long had a haunting reputation. In 1964, a group of school children on a field trip were waiting outside for their tour of the mansion. The curator was running late, and the building was locked up tight. The kids were playing around and making noise, as they are prone to do, when a woman appeared on the balcony over the front door and told the children to shush. Surprised and sufficiently cowed by the woman, the children complied and settled down as much as you might expect them to. When the curator finally arrived to open the house, she insisted that the house had been empty. It had been locked up tight, and there was no one else who could have been there. But the curator listened as the children described who they had seen, and the woman sounded very familiar indeed, just like Eliza Jumel, the mansion's former owner who had died in 1865. Eliza was an unconventional woman and ahead of her time. She had a sharp business sense and had climbed her way to wealth from amongst the lowest rungs of American society, facts that did not serve her reputation well in the mid-1800s. Born in 1775, Eliza grew up in poor in Rhode Island, but she didn't let her situation shackle her dreams. Eliza educated herself, even becoming fluent in French. Once she was able to make her way to New York City, she found work as an actress, one of the lowest occupations you could take on in the late 1700s and early 1800s, but it was a job that sometimes helped women catch the eyes of well-to-do bachelors. That's exactly what Eliza managed to do. Stephen Jumel, a French-born wine merchant and importer of luxury goods, took a liking to Eliza, and they married in 1804, an event that sent tongues wagging in New York City's elite social circles. Rumors held that Eliza had tricked Stephen into the marriage after being his mistress for an extended period. People whispered that they only married because Eliza had pretended to be on her deathbed, claiming it was her dying wish to be married. These, however, are just unsubstantiated rumors, likely stemming from Eliza's shrewd business sense. Eliza successfully managed the couple's money and business holdings for extended periods of time when her husband was away in Europe on business, a fact that upset some businessmen in New York who had hoped to take advantage of Stephen's absence. The ultimate rumor swirls around Stephen's death in 1832 at the age of 77. His official cause of death is listed as pneumonia, but the elite community of New York City would not pass up an opportunity to try and take Eliza Jamel down a peg. 
A story swirled that one evening Stephen fell from a hay cart and onto a pitchfork. The initial accident did not kill him outright, but it was said that Eliza removed his bandages, allowing him to bleed out. While there may be a sliver of truth in that series of events, it carries the stench of slander above all else. Fourteen months after Stephen's death, Eliza married Aaron Burr. Yes. Oh, yeah. The one and only Aaron Burr. Because we're never done with Aaron Burr. We can't be done with Aaron Burr. He somehow managed to weave his way into just about every aspect of early 1800 society in the United States. And abroad, for that matter. But that's we haven't covered for, that part yet. That's, a, for another, <laughs> that's for another time. Now, in theory, they each had assets to bring to the marriage. Whatever power he had left as the one-time vice president of the United States and her money as the one of the wealthiest women in New York City. Burr started to quickly burn through Eliza's liquid assets, and the two separated after only four months of marriage. Eliza sued for divorce, but it wasn't finalized until the day of Burr's death in 1836. Basically, the court verdict came out, and Aaron Burr effectively dropped dead. That's not much of a Apparently, he had heard the verdict and literally died three hours later. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, uh, Eliza spent the rest of her life ruling over the mansion on the hill and her extended family, including the grandchildren of her much-loved sister. But when she died at age 90, she left much of her large estate to a local church and other charities, to the surprise of her relatives, who had expected a more generous inheritance. <laughs> they spent two decades fighting Eliza's will, and when they finally succeeded, they sold the land and the house to a syndicate of land developers. For years after that, the house stood empty. At least it was empty for any living people. <laughs> Ultimately, the city took possession of the property and transformed the house into a museum. While Eliza may be the most prominent spirit at the Morris Jamal Mansion today, she herself had claimed the place was already haunted when she and Stephen bought it in 1810. Built by Colonel Roger Morris, a British loyalist, and, and commandeered as George Washington's headquarters during the Revolutionary War, yes, this is a place that actually did serve as Washington's headquarters, so there's so many signs, so many places that love to, you know, Washington slept here type deal. This one did. This is the real deal. So, anyways, um, but yeah, the building was uh, also quartered Hessian mercenaries before briefly becoming a tavern in 1789. In short, the 45-year-old home already had a very tumultuous history by the time the Jamels moved in. In addition to encounters with Eliza, visitors would occasionally report seeing the ghost of a Hessian soldier who was said to have died on the stairs of the home, or a maid who had jumped out of a window. Some very famous spirits have been rumored to linger on here as well. An anxious General Washington is sometimes said to pace the floors, and some even like to claim that Aaron Burr may still be around despite his short tenure in the home. Personally, we think that Burr would prefer spending his afterlife with his daughter Theodosia at their one-time home in Manhattan's West Village at what is now the restaurant One is by Land, Two is by Sea. Which we've covered. Yep. If you want more information on that haunting, we have already featured it on a show. It was in Haunted Restaurants, which aired on March 1st of 2021. Again, as with all the other shows, you can find that on Facebook and YouTube. But we digress. 
For decades, most of the Morris Jumel mansion's past, including its ghost, was left to languish while the curators focused on the few weeks Washington had spent there. Fortunately for us spooky people and for the other chapters of the mansion's history, other aspects of its long history are now shared alongside its ties to General Washington. This includes regularly scheduled paranormal investigations where small groups can try and communicate with the resident spirits. Not everyone at the mansion is so keen to encounter spirits, though. A former staffer who would occasionally stay in the caretaker's basement apartment sometimes heard heavy footsteps above her head when the house was supposed to be empty. Refusing to believe in visitors of the spirited sort, a search of the home inevitably reveals no living intruders. But some staffers keep a log of strange experiences, disembodied voices, doors opening, lights being turned on and off. The mansion started embracing its spirited side when Vincent Carbone, a Long Island native and paranormal investigator, contacted the mansion about conducting an investigation for a friend's bachelor party. His timing was just right. The mansion's spooky reputation had reached an undeniable level, and Vincent's experience as a respectable investigator was a great fit for the mansion. He not only got the investigation for the party, but he also joined the mansion's full-time staff in 2016. The mansion has hosted sold-out public paranormal investigations ever since, helping to bring in visitors who otherwise may have overlooked the Morris Jamel Mansion. The investigations are half historic tour, half intro to ghost hunting. The guests get much of the same information they would on a traditional tour, plus getting to walk into rooms normally roped off to the public with the potential of encountering a historic spirit. So if you're up for a paranormal field trip to Manhattan's Washington Heights neighborhood, just hop the metro to the 163rd Street Station and walk a block over to Manhattan's oldest residence for a spirited step back in time. And then, yes, you may reenact Washington Heights, or in the Heights. In the Heights. Courtesy of Mr. Lynn Manuel. Yep. Our favorite person that we never knew. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Comments, comments. Uh, <laughs> they like the picture that you posted of me and Nico earlier. Nico, get out of the research bag. Uh, sounds like Eliza was a good actor if the deathbed story is true. And, uh, oh, so it was Eliza who finally did Aaron Burr in. <laughs> good one. <laughs> there might be a state of truth to that. I'm, I wonder if Eliza and Eliza were friends because, I mean, they may have known each other, but they, they... I mean, they lived uptown. The Hamiltons lived uptown. Oh, is that Eliza? Yeah. I'm sorry, I was thinking actress Eliza Poe. Oh. They may have known each other, too. But they were... There should be a whole group of Elizas who knew each other in history. I'm just saying. Do we have to do, like, a haunted history thing for Elizas in the early 1800s in America? You are asking for a very specific rabbit hole, Maybe. Which you could probably carve two or three episodes out of, to be honest. Maybe. We'll see. It might be a very, very niche subject, but I bet that rabbit hole goes deep. <laughs> Let me get through the other rabbit holes first. That's all I'm saying. Anyways. That's all I'm saying. I've got like 32 scripts that are not finished right now. Let me get out of the rabbit holes I'm already in. Just saying. She, she works hard. 
Back on the water hole. <laughs> anyway, here we go. Uh, yeah, we're going to stay in New York City, and we're going to go to the House of Death. Yes. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Yes. Dun-dun. All right, so this one's not open to the public, but you can walk by and take in the sights of one of New York City's most beautiful neighborhoods. It is a 30-minute ride on the A-line that will take you almost the full length of Manhattan down to Greenwich Village and here amongst the cafes and the Brownstone residents, the Off-Broadway theaters, and make, of course, this area the most famous, you can find one home that carries a much different vibe, the House of Death. This is at 14 West 10th Street. The building itself is just as gorgeous as any of the other revivalist Greek brownstones in the neighborhood, but its legacy is dark and cold. It was built in 1856. It was a home that housed many of the city's bright and beautiful, including the wife of the founder of the Metropolitan Underground Railroad, the Broadway Underground Railroad, Mr. James Borman Johnson. Johnson was responsible for founding a reading room, a library, the famed 10th Street Studio. Did he bite you? He tried. Oh. And point of clarity, when we're talking Underground Railroad, we're literally talking about the basically the original Metro. Yes. Not the... It was known as the Underground Railroad. Yeah. Not the one during the Civil War, pre-Civil War. Yep. So... Anyway. Point of order. Point of order. Carry on. <laughs> All right. Uh, the 10th Street Studio was a collective with studios, galleries, and annual funding for resident artists. After she died, his wealthy widow moved their daughters into the House of Death in the 1880s. The house seemed to have started earning its reputation gradually after the Borman family stopped living here. The first recorded incident of bad luck happened in 1897. Cycling celebrity Fred Andrew, the new owner and occupier of the home, had a moment of bad luck, shall we call it. During his residency, he described uh, to the New York Times on August 9th of 1897, he had a moment of reckless bicycling riding. It caused him to hit a boy who was around eight years old at the time. The boy suffered a broken leg, and Andrew was subsequently arrested. The house's most famous, most famous tenant, there we go, was Mark Twain. Twain was a resident at the House of Death for three uh three years after uh, Fred Andrew. Mark Twain only lived in the house for a little over 12 months. He was battling bankruptcy and turning out some of his works that became classics, even though they were a bit on the rush side. He was also battling depression at this time. Twain was a noted ghost skeptic, yet he wrote of a clear and plain paranormal experience that he had in his new home. One evening, he witnessed a large piece of wood uh, kindling moving in the air all by itself. Thinking that the wood was being moved by a rat, he picked up his gun, took aim, and fired. The wood fell to the ground, and there were a few drops of blood nearby, but there was no sign of any creature that would have left the blood behind. Still, Twain insisted that the blood must have been uh, of a rational source, a.k.a. a rat that scurried away. Although Twain did not have many pleasant memories at the house, he uh, just Despite his vehement disbelief of the paranormal, people reported that his spirit actually lingers on in his one-time residence. Subsequent occupants have witnessed Twain's spirit trudging up and down the stairs, commonly considered the most haunted section of the house. 
One of the most notable Twain encounters came in 1937 when a mother and daughter suddenly came upon Twain's spirit perched on one of the home's window seats. He rose and approached the pair saying, my name is Clemens and I have a problem here, gotta settle. He disappeared moments later into thin air. While the problem was never defined, it was probably financial and mutual. And, of course, given that Twain had many financial issues while he was residing in the home. Of all those places that Twain resided during his life, it's a shame to believe that he would wind up in New York City where he endured some of his most troubling years. Granted, if you think about stone theory and residual haunting, all that emotion probably was laid down pretty strongly for him at that point in time, so I'm actually not surprised. Sorry. I was typing. I, I didn't catch any of that. Residual haunting, Twain's strong emotions, yep. laying down. I'm not surprised he haunts there in a residual way. No, that does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. He... <laughs> when you're stressed out, you're going to leave a mark. I'm just saying. And and, uh, and Patrick was just uh, commenting about uh, uh, how, um, you know, using a, let's use a gun to kill a rat, as in, let's kind of like overkill. But I had to point Other out, time. I have to point out that Mark Twain, a.k.a. or Daniel, Daniel Clemens, or Mark Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, whatever have you, was about as subtle as a hammer, so using a gun to kill a rat is kind of in character. Yeah, <laughs> totally in character. All right, so let's move on. 20 years later, in 1957, renowned actress, psychic, and writer, Jane Bryant Bartell, why did I choose this story? And her daughter took up residency in the spacious apartment on the top floor. Bartell reported almost immediately that a monstrous moving shadow would often follow her around the house. What? Oh, you're being dramatic. <laughs> Later, she wrote of a ghostly figure of a man that she encountered in the hall. She reached out and t tried to touch whatever she was seeing and described it as a substance without substance. A substance without substance. She was a poet. Cut her some slack. Or don't. <laughs> it was chilly, damp, diaphanous as the marsh mist or cloud of ether. I'll give her props for that. Ah, <laughs> uh, now I could, of course, Feel my fingers freeze at the tips. They were numb, yet they tingled. In the split second between contact and recoil, the scent came. Fragile, languorous, and sweet, unbearably cloyingly sweet. The unusual scent was not, <clears throat> excuse me, was not the only otter and bitter scent the Bartell family reported smelling during their time at the house of death. Food not purchased by them and already rotting, as if it had been sitting around for days, would suddenly appear on the table. There are many small animals would often become aggressive for no reason, as if disturbed by invisible enemies in the building. Bartel was a true believer and took the provocative step, excuse me, proactive step, of employing a paranormal expert to investigate what could be causing these terrifying realities for the state-scared uh, residents. 
The investigator confirmed what the couple believed from the start. Uh, the investigator proclaimed there were upward of 22 spirits in the house of death. Besides Mark Twain, he mentioned in additional that there was a woman in a white dress, a young girl, and a gray cat. Martel decided to write about her experiences in the house and titled it Spin Drift, Spray from the Psychic Sea. She vividly recounts what it was like to live in the home. The book was well received and received many favorable reviews. Bartel died shortly after completing the manuscript in one might, what might, one might consider mysterious circumstances. She was a sufferer of depressive episodes, and there were rumors of suicide attempts. Her death led credence to the legend that the house of death is cursed. Her lingering skeptics about the home, well, there's one event left that, of course, convinced the last few doubters of the haunting curse. On November 2nd of 1987, why is it always 7th with this house? 37, 57, 87. It's not a lucky number. Not for this house. Not for Anyway, the murder of Lisa Nesbaum shocked the city that was gritted, gritty and jaded by the violence that it was witnessing in that era. Around 6.40 a.m., 911 operators got a phone call from the children's author and editor, Hedda Nesbaum. She said her six-year-old daughter, Lisa, wasn't breathing. So an ambulance was sent to Greenwich residence right away. When the paramedics arrived, they were greeted by a very disturbing scene. They found Lisa lying unresponsive on the kitchen floor, her brother Mitchell tied to a playpen and filthy, said it was covered in bruises and had several broken bones. Investigators also discovered a substantial stash of varying drugs and 25000 in cash in the apartment. Paramedics were regrettably unable to revive Lisa on their way to the hospital. Her autopsy revealed that the cause of death was repeat blood tra- force trauma to the skull. Hedda and her lawyer, Joel Stomberg, Lisa's father, were both arrested and subsequently charged with first-degree murder. It was charged that, excuse me, it was charged that after a drug binge, Joel violently abused both Lisa and Hedda. Hedda avoided the charge and for testimony against Joel. The jury found him guilty of manslaughter in the second degree and sentenced him to a term in jail. Upon his relief in 2004, Joel left the law behind and took a construction job. While there is no excusing Joel's actions, the house of death, well, let's just say, it revived and reinforced this home's cursed reputation. Even though the home is still elegant and gives no clues to the horrors that have transpired there, it's a classic example that you should not judge a book by its cover. Yep. From the outside, it's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful place. Completely, you know. Unobtrusive. It's gorgeous. It fits right into the neighborhood. neighborhood. It's, it's still a private residence. So, um, and it does raise the question, I don't, I did not find when it first received the moniker House of Death. Yeah. I didn't find that either. I, I don't know at what stage somebody finally came forth and looked at it and was like, how many times have we talked about this house? This seems like bad juju at this house. Yeah, and you can bet it's probably somebody in a scandal magazine. Yeah, probably. And, that, and then all of a sudden, just eventually, just out of the blue, one day, yeah, house of death. So, but anyways, yes, you can 
You can drive by there, but don't go knocking on any doors. That is not open to the public. So, yes. Yeah. And Patrick just asked, how did it get the name of House of Death? Yeah. No idea. Again, it's sometime after the original owners, um, but before the cyclists. So sometime in that time period mm-hmm. is when it happened. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's one of those things. And trying to find what occurred there between those two that gave it that moniker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nasty juju. Nasty juju. Anyways, we are going to go ahead. We're going to move along. We're going to slide just a little upstate. We're not going to upstate. Don't get me wrong. This is not upstate. We are talking about the mid-Hudson region of New York State. This is still very much downstate. We are in upstate right now. We are in upstate. That is not upstate. Yes. Just. Just so you all know from native New Yorkers. it's It's a passionate argument. Uh, particularly amongst New York versus up, the rest of the state. Upstate New Yorkers. Anyways, uh, I digress. So we're going to go to the little hamlet of Napanock. Fun name. I will Napanock. say that. Napanock. Napanock. <laughs> I've been waiting to do that. <laughs> Noted. All right. So here you can find a paranormal investigator's paradise at the Haunted Shanley Hotel. Yes, that is its real like name now. They, they call it the Haunted Shanley Hotel. Now, this is a historic bed and breakfast that has hosted several famous guests, as well as a few infamous ones that used to visit the Gentleman's Club and Bordello, Bordello that operated there. A few of those guests have never left and still linger in the corridors waiting to greet newcomers and welcome back the returning guests. In 1845, Thomas Rich built Rich's Hotel on Main Street. Napanoff was a nice vacation destination for those attempting to escape the hustle and bustle of the larger cities, and Rich's Hotel did a swift business. Rich sold the hotel in 1851, and it was renamed the Hungerford's Hotel. Mr. Hungerford catered to the same clientele as Mr. Rich, including the elite gentleman's club that boasted a very distinguished membership. The hotel changed hands a few times, but in 1887, Adolf Wagner became the new landlord. Eight years later, on March 18, 1895, a nearby home in Napanoff caught fire. The fire quickly spread, leaving ruin in its wake. The Shanley Hotel was not spared the damage and was tragically burned to the ground. Mr. Wagner would not see his investment go to waste, so he quickly rebuilt, and the hotel was back in business by November of the same year. The most notable owner, and for whom the hotel is still named, was James Shanley. When his family immigrated to New York City from Ireland, James and his brothers found success in opening restaurants and hotels across the country. James moved upstate and discovered the beauty of the hotel and the town of Napanon. He purchased the hotel on October 1st of 1906. Mr. Shanley gave it his own touch by adding a bowling alley, billiard room, and even a barber shop to the building. James's success brought prestige to the community, but wasn't simply his ability to produce revenue that made the people of Napanock love him. He was genuinely a good man that people were drawn to, including the lovely Beatrice Rowley. The two were married at the Shanley Hotel on April 26th of 1910 and took off to the nation's capital to enjoy their honeymoon. 
When the newlyweds returned from Washington, D.C., they were met by not only a parade welcoming them home, but also a grand party that night that would signal a bright future for the young couple. Unfortunately, the hopes for that bright future would be dashed in the years ahead. Beatrice loved children and dreamed of having a large family with her beloved James. On January 6th of 1912, she gave birth to their first daughter, Kathleen. Unfortunately, the little one only lived a shot just shy of six months. Beatrice would go on to give birth to two more children, James Shanley Jr., who lived four and a half months, and William Shanley, who died at a little over nine months old. Esther and John Fogman, Fogman, yeah, lived in the adjoining apartment of Beatrice and James. Beatrice was very close with her sister, Esther, who was a notable beauty with a kind heart. As much as Esther loved her sister, she dearly missed her friends and family she had left behind in New York City. It is said that every day she would wait beside the mahogany telephone booth waiting for her friends to ring from back home. Esther met a sudden end at the hands of influenza in 1918, leaving her grief-stricken sister to raise her two little girls. Even through the hardships, Beatrice and James Shanley entertained and welcomed everyone to the Shanley Hotel. Mrs. Shanley was quite famous for her high teas and social card parties. She may have lived in a small town, but she still wore decadent jewelry and was on the cutting edge of fashion. Her hotel reflected her knack for style with Victorian beds with sheets of satin and silk. Perhaps this is why they had notable guests such as Thomas Edison and Eleanor Roosevelt. But it was just as likely that the Shanleys were an engaging pair that people just wanted to be friends with. The couple even attended the inaugural ball for President FDR. The Shanley Hotel provided an emotional whirlwind for Beatrice and James, and it may be for that reason that Beatrice lingers on there today. Many guests have witnessed a woman in period dress wandering through the hallways. She was also known for her fragrant perfume, and several people have suddenly smelled a wonderful scent that many people believe to be Mrs. Shanley nearby. Tragedy was not limited to the Shanley family. In September of 1915, another tragic moment occurred for a nearby family. Dr. Walter Nelson Thayer Jr. was backing his car out of the alley that ran between his home and the hotel. His five-year-old son, Walter Nelson Thayer III, jumped onto the running board only to fall off again. The car backed over him and he suffered severe head injuries but did not die of the incident. For years, many have claimed that the boy was the spirit affectionately called Jonathan that plays in the hotel's attic. Perhaps a piece of the boy was left behind after the terrible accident, even if it didn't take his life. There's also the barber whom James had hired, Peter Gregor, who lived in the Shanley Hotel with his family. His youngest daughter, Rosie, was only three years old when she wandered across the road to the Hornbeak Farm. There, she lifted a wooden slab to peer into the covered well. Losing her balance, Rosie toppled into the well, striking her head upon the rocks as she fell. Her body was found nearly two hours later. Her broken-hearted father came to the conclusion that he could no longer live at the site of the tragic accident, so he gathered his wife and remaining daughter and returned to Brooklyn. Many people have seen the apparition of the little girl and have heard her speaking to them from the shadows of the hallways in the hotel. After young Rosie's death and her family left the Shanley Hotel, the attempt to legislate morality became the norm for the Congress of the United States. 
When they issued the 18th Amendment prohibiting the transportation and sale of alcohol in the United States, several establishments found ways to flout the law, and James was not immune to the desire to please his clientele. What was once the Gregor apartment became an active bordello with ladies there to meet the desires of those who frequented the speakeasy and gentleman club. One might wonder how these pleasures of the flesh would have given countenance by Beatrice, but no one knows for sure. We do know that the hotel had been conducting similar business since its inception as the Rich Hotel. We also know that James was actively involved with John Powers, a known liquor bootlegger. The two kept the hidden contraband hidden beneath the bar through a trap door. A raid was conducted on the Shanley Hotel on February 26th of 1932, which led to the confiscation of the alcohol and the arrest of John Powers and James Shanley. Though both were arraigned in federal court, neither of them did any time. It's possible that the close connection that Beatrice and James had with President Roosevelt and his wife helped with that indiscretion. Many believe that John Powers never left the Shanley and continues to lurk in darkened corners looking to reclaim the booze that was taken from him. For James's part, he would live a few more years before passing away in 1937 after a heart attack. As the broken-hearted community bid farewell to James, Beatrice decided it was time to let the hotel go. She sold the Stanley Hotel to Alan Hazen, who ran the hotel until his death in 1971. Throughout the next few decades, the Shanley changed ownership multiple times and even served as a tavern, the James Shanley Taproom. In 1991, it closed its doors and was abandoned for over 10 years until a man took on the challenge of restoring the building to its former glory. In 2005, Salvatore Nicosa bought the Shanley unaware of the spirits residing within its walls. It did not take long for the spirits to make themselves known to Salvatore as they observed his efforts to restore their long-term home. Now known as this haunted Shanley Hotel, it serves both the living and the dead in Napanock. Over the years, visitors have reported seeing chairs rocking on the room, mysterious clock chimes, cold and hot spots, disembodied whistling, footsteps and voices, piano music, and the aromas of cooking when no food is being prepared. Along with the many spirits who were reported to reside at the Shanley for many decades past, several additional spirits have come to make themselves known in the haunted Shanley Hotel. A local preacher's daughter, Helen, was only nine years old when she was lured into a nearby swamp with the promise of a lollipop and murdered by Alfred Volkman, the son of a butcher. Volkman served time in the notorious Sing Sing prison before he was executed. It is said that both Helen and Volkman are uh, frequent guests at the Shanley today. There are also some unsettled spirits from the Bordello and Speakeasy days, including a bodyguard named Frank and a mafia hitman named Joe. While they're not the kind of spirits that you want to encounter, you will want to be aware that they do linger on as a part of the hotel's past. On the more pleasant side, there is the resident ghost cat, which they affectionately know as Sweet Thing. The current owners, Vital and Hammerling, clearly appreciate all of their guests from both sides of the mortal coil, but recognize that as far as the spirits go, this isn't our home. This is their home. The correct attitude. Mm-hmm. When do we go? Uh, I don't know. When are we going to do a haunted New York road trip? I'm ready. Would the cats like it? 
No, I think they like the cottage. I don't think they'd like bouncing from point to point across the state. So we're going to have them say, Grandma, Grandpa. You never know. <laughs> One thing at a time. Let's right. not. Let's try to not plan a vacation from scratch while we're live on the air. Point. <laughs> uh, anyway, in? for um, Alex, uh, I was drinking Strongbow, and Chris is actually drinking the new release from Richbrow. Do you want to show that off? It is half days. It is a red ale, and it is quite tasty. So, highly recommend it from our friends down at Richbrow. They have another one that's. Uh, Oh, crap, it's in the fridge. It's a strong one. It's a strong one. I think it clocked in at like 11.5%. Yes. So, yeah, it's um, it's for sharing. <laughs> yeah. But um, Maybe that'll be tomorrow. Uh, yeah, Rich Brown, they, maybe it will be tomorrow. They, Rich Brown always almost always has something new coming out, like every few weeks. Um, you know, they have Their some... 13 o'clock is really good right now. 13 o'clock is chocolate chip cookie. Oh. So good right now. Mm, love it. Go down to Rich Brown and get some. Yes. They're closed tomorrow, by the way, because, well, they're closed on Tuesday. And it's 4th of July, but yes. But so go on Wednesday. Go on Wednesday. Any day but Tuesday. Or better yet, go on the Brewfest Day. Get your tickets now for that, by the way. I'll be giving the tour that night. Yes. So, yeah, Brewfest USA, they're kind of the, the main host for the event. It's going to be on Saturday, July 15th, I think from like 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. It's going to be in the... Uh, parking lot just below the flood wall. So uh, uh, just down below 20th Street there in Richmond. Yeah, live music, good beer, good food. Yep, and they're inviting a bunch of their friends. There's going to be like a total of 10 breweries there. I think there's three bands playing through the day. So going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be there for a good portion of the act for the day before we uh, spin off to go do our tour thing that night, of which we do have our Shadow of Shaco, which will start half a block away from the party. I promise not to be drunk. That's good. The same. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to go over to a friend of ours' um, uh, place, Daniel Klaus. Uh, there we go. Uh, was a gentleman we met back in March of 2020. Really nice guy. Yeah, awesome guy. Um, and just started chatting about haunted New York with him and then saw him again at a festival we did a few months later. Um, was it um, spring? Was no, it, uh, it was Fleetwood? Fleetwood, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's when we next and saw him, and we've seen him a couple times since then. Our friend Steve Dills works with him as well. Uh, but this is his place. It's known as the Hinsdale House in Hinsdale, New York. It's out in western New York, and it's, of course, uh, an old tucked away in the woods that's become known as one of the most notoriously violent haunted locations in the country. With a history of ghostly manifestation, levitating objects, and even exorcism. The Hinsdale House has become one of the most sought after investigation locations in all of New York State. Now, let's talk about the history of the location. In the early 1970s, the Dandy family moved into the century old farmhouse, thinking they had found their dream home in the county. Uh, they would soon discover that the truth was far more terrifying. Within days, they began to experience strange paranormal activity that only continued to grow worse as time went on. Most often, the phenomenon would manifest in the form of mysterious phone calls and a variety of poltergeist activity. Sometimes, the family would even hear chanting emanating from the nearby woods. 
After chalking up the strange activity to overactive imaginations, the Dandy family then began seeing full-body apparitions of a woman in white, bizarre animal-human hybrids, and what they believed could be demonic non-human entities. One of the more frightening stories the family would go on to tell was of the night that they noticed a group of strange faces staring in their windows. However, when Mr. Danny ran outside to chase away the trespassers, the faces actually reversed and were now peering back at him from inside the house. Well, at this point, the hauntings began to turn violent. Objects began levitating around the house, and at one point, a lamp from the living room threw itself at one of the Dandy daughters. The last straw came when Mr. Dandy experienced a state of amnesia, unable to remember some of most of the frightening incidents. It was then that the exorcist named Father Alfonso, a priest from the St. Bonaventure University, was called in to exorcise the home while the family and a paranormal research team were present. According to the eyewitnesses, the paranormal activity became the strongest it had ever been. The lights in the house were turning on and off, unexplainable banging filtered through the walls, and a terrible sense of an evil presence drifted through the home. Unfortunately, the exorcism didn't work, and after a few days of calm in the house, the activity ramped up again, finally forcing the dandies to move. Documentation on the Hinsdale House continued in 2000 when Clara Miller Dandy penned the book Echoes of a Haunting, which details her family's terrifying experiences while they lived in the home from July 1973 to October of 1974. Today, the house, as I mentioned, has been purchased by lo- uh, local paranormal investigator Daniel Clays. Uh, now, he's preserving the haunting building for research purposes. He lets teams investigate the property in hopes of discovering the mystery behind the ghosts who haunt this home. Place, who is also the co-founder of the Greater Western New York Paranormal Society, believes that the paranormal activity goes back to 1799, when a massacre of Native Americans is said to have occurred on the land. Mary Ball, an investigator who spent many years at this house, recalled an event when her son was sitting in bed one night. He didn't know the stories about the house. He just knew it was haunted. Well, he then looked out the window, saw his dad standing out by the fire, and he looked at me and said, who's the angry Indian standing next to daddy? That's terrifying. That is very terrifying. But it does lead and lend some credibility to Daniel's thoughts. Absolutely. So... Now, horrifying historic events continued in the 1800s when there were stories of a pair of brothers who lived at the house raiding passing stagecoaches. They would rob and kill the occupants, burying them um, either in the cellar or on the hills behind the house. Daniel says that the chilling past seems to echo today many manifestations, including shadow figures, disembodied voices, footsteps walking through the upstairs of the house, Objects moving, including a door slams and full-body apparitions. To help pay for the ongoing repairs and restoration work, he invites paranormal investigators to make donations in exchange for time spent in the house. Very few go away disappointed. And if a full investigation isn't your thing, there are also regularly scheduled tours of the house as well. There's a short drive from Buffalo and Niagara Falls to visit the Hinsdale House. This perfect little paranormal day trip if you ever decide to find yourself in this corner of New York. 
I will say they actually do on their website have a video uh, stream of the house, so you can actually watch things that happen in the house as well. Um, Daniel says they pop several things on that live streaming feed. Um, and there's also a donate button, or you can purchase one of Daniel's books or the uh, T-shirts that also help with funding for the repairs. They did just have a massive water pipe break this past winter. Mm, yeah. So a lot of the money they had saved up for other repairs had to go for the emergency repairs. When you're restoring old buildings, all bets are off. Yes. You never know what's going to happen. Because, well, the fact of the matter is, is that oftentimes when you fix one thing, you, you, you find a million others. That or you unintentionally break something else. Yeah. I mean, things like what happened to our friends down at Mason's Hall in Richmond, Shaco Bottom. Yeah. They they put in a new HVAC system with the intention of helping to climate control the building, which is going to help long-term preserve it. Preserve it. Let it dry out the main support beam and crack it. Yep, exactly. So. So again, all their money then went to emergency save the roof. Save the roof, which yeah, without the roof, you're kind of hosed. So yes, but they got that fixed. Then eventually they raised the money again, and they did a beautiful paint job. And the they got new doors. Mason's home. I think they, I think they just refinished the doors. In any case, anyway, the doors Mason, are done, and Mason's hall looks amazing from the outside. And now they're working on the basement yeah. and the foundation to make sure that that's preserved and safe. Yep. So um, they're doing a great job over there. Yeah. But, yeah, historic preservation, the work is never done. Never, never done. Ending. So, But, yeah, that was our last story for this evening. We hope that you enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did just miss a ship. Oh. Uh, I, well, I, there's three more right behind it. Yeah. So, but... We could go ahead and take you out on the porch and see if it could kind of give you a little bit of view to go ahead and we'll close out tonight's program. It is a little smoky out there. Uh, it's not as smoky as it has been because we are right next to Canada, and so even if you're watching from Richmond, you probably remember the smoke from the wildfires there a few, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, well, which actually kind of made a little bit of a brief reappearance again last this past week. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, let's just say that, we're just starting to get our first break in the smoke for the first time since we've been here last Friday. It's been really smoky, really smoky. But got a little break in it, just started this afternoon. So let's go ahead. We'll show you the view. Take a little walk out here. Show you the view. Hopefully our Wi-Fi doesn't cut out. Um, that we're going to be very, very close to home. We are doing 
Haunted Henrico. Haunted Henrico County. Yes. Yes. So if uh, if you're from Central Virginia, you know exactly what we're talking about. But if you're not from Central Virginia, let's just say that Henrico County is immediately on the border of the city of Richmond. Yeah, it basically is like a sea around it. Yep. So we are going to be very, very close to home with stories effectively kind of sort of from home, but they're stories that we don't really get to tell on the tours because our tours don't go out into Henrico County. Unless we ever get a bus. One thing at a time. Yes. So in the meantime, we are uh, running tours, again, every night of the week, except for tomorrow. We are taking tomorrow off, or yes. rather our, our guys are taking tomorrow off. off. So, uh, but after that, be back Wednesday and be back every night thereafter. So, yeah, and our new tour is running this Friday, Shades and Spectres of Court End. So definitely check that out. Yep. Uh, that is Friday at 7:30. It is an awesome tour. I really, really worked hard to put that one together, and yes. I really enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> that one, both of our newer tours, that one and uh, the Creepy Tales on Campus, which will be the following Friday. Following Friday, we love both of those new tours. Um, neighborhoods are absolutely gorgeous. The stories are fantastic. And, uh, yeah, so come on out. You can check those out. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, we'll go ahead. We'll check out for this evening. But thank you all again for uh, tuning in. We hope that you all have a happy and safe Fourth of July. And, uh, yeah, we will yeah. see you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Careful with those, uh, careful with those fireworks. Or better yet, leaving the professionals, if you will. Yeah. Yep. So, all right. Anyways, good night, everybody. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.